And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Michael Beller, Derek Van Riper with you here on this Thursday. We are getting back to our Beat Writer Roundup report, and today we start off with Caitlin McGrath. Caitlin covers the Toronto Blue Jays for us. Caitlin, thanks for joining us here on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, you uh, the Blue Jays are in the center of a lot of things we want to talk about. When I first reached out to you, we thought we were going to be talking about post-Alec Manoa's debut MLB start. That ended up getting washed out by rain in New York. So now we are, what, five hours or so ahead of Alec Manoa making his MLB debut, something we are all very excited to watch against the Yankees later today. Looking at this from a big picture perspective, how should we expect the organization to treat Manoa for the rest of the year? Meaning in terms of uh, pitch count, innings limits, is there a chance he gets sent back to the minors? What's the general structure of how we should be thinking about Manoa and the Blue Jays the remainder of the season? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of surprising in some ways to see him at the major league level so quickly. Obviously, um, I think coming into this, he'll really have only pitched 35 professional innings before this. He made three excellent AAA starts this year, which is a reason why um, he got the call up. I think that the Blue Jays want to see him challenged, and he really wasn't getting challenged at the um, minor league level. I think in 18 innings in, in AAA, he struck out 27 guys or something like that. So um, on the one hand, the Blue Jays totally believe that he's ready. They wouldn't give him the opportunity if they didn't. At the, other, at the same time, the Blue Jays, as you guys are probably aware, have had quite a number of injuries this year. They really have not even had a complete rotation this entire season. Um, if you look at it at different points, they've gone from two guys in their rotation to like four, maybe um, even the first week they had like Robbie Ray out. So a lot of injuries. So the Blue Jays want to challenge Alec Manoa at the same time. They really need him in this spot. So I think that they have given some young pitchers opportunity to take that fifth spot and run with it. And we've seen some guys not be able to do that. Anthony Kay and Nate Pearson, TJ Zoik, they all had opportunities. They all wavered in that opportunity. They're all in the minors right now trying to sort of find that consistency. So I think the Blue Jays, if they see Alec um, sort of running with that opportunity, they're going to let him run with it. Of course, they'll have to be mindful of workload. Um, but at the same time, I think that he's not... Um, He's not really a candidate that he's not like in the Nate Pearson category where he's missed a lot of time with injury and stuff. I think in his college um, year 2019, he pitched a lot. And then obviously the lost 2020 season, but he still pitched quite a bit. Um, and so there doesn't seem to be sort of that constant concern about his workload and his innings limit the way that we hear about maybe Nate Pearson or some other guys that have had more injuries in their career. So, um, of course, it's going to be something that they're going to be mindful of. But I honestly think that if he can um, use this opportunity and um, if he is pitching well, the Blue Jays will want to keep him in the majors. I don't think they want to be in a situation where he's yo-yoing between the two levels. Yeah, it's really amazing because I think for college players who were drafted two years ago in 2019, is one of them, the missing piece of 2020 is bigger for those guys than it was for anybody else. Because if he had dominated in high A and double A last year, it wouldn't be as jarring to see what he did at triple A and to see him debuting right now. It's a normal <laughs> sort of progression. Uh, but the back of the rotation, as you mentioned, so many candidates in and out so far, a lot of moving parts. Ross Stripling seemingly stabilized his hold on a rotation spot with his best outing of the year last time out against the Rays. Did he change anything? Do you think he turned a corner? And, and how safe do you think his hold is on a prominent role for the Jays? 
Yeah, so Ross Ripley, previous to that, um, well, it wasn't really a start against the Rays because they did use the opener and then he came in the second, but then he ended up pitching what, a, what is like seven innings or so. was felt like a start, but um, he made a lot of changes actually. So pr- prior to that, he sort of was a bit almost like frustrated and searching for answers after a run of sort of poor starts for him. And he made some changes um, that he called pretty drastic. Uh, basically, he felt like he was tipping his pitches in the way that he was sort of like moving his arms and moving his glove. And so he actually um, moved to a position where he's just keeping his hands down, essentially, like by his belt, by his sides. And he felt like that was enough of a change where he wasn't sort of um, broadcasting his pitches. And also, he said, like, helped with his timing a little bit. And so it's actually pretty remarkable to see a pitcher um, make that drastic of a change with basically, what, four days in between. And and Ross Stripling, um, getting to sort of know him and talk to him, he is a, a, a thinker. He is a cerebral type pitcher um, and it is a guy that actually does like to really like look at the numbers and look at the video and really likes to think about pitching. So it didn't really surprise me that if there was a pitcher who would be able to really like make a change and, and really dive into um, why that change was necessary, it's Ross Stripling. And he was also in a place where it's like, there's no point in being stubborn because you have to figure out what is happening here. And, you know, credit to the Blue Jays, too. Like, they um, are, you know, gaining somewhat of a reputation for, for really helping starting pitchers. Pete Walker, their pitching coach, is, you know, becoming a bit of a le- legend here um, because of the way that he's helped um, a guy like Robbie Ray, who, if you guys haven't noticed, throws strikes now. Completely just throws strikes. So, um and, you know, Ross Stripling could be another example of that. Steven Matz, I mean, there's a, a little bit of up and down to Steven Matz, but his last outing was probably his best of the year, too. So um, the Blue Jays pitching situation has been really interesting to watch. There's been a lot of ebbs and flows. We've seen the starters look excellent. We've seen the starters waver a little bit and not and, and also just sort of not have that complete rotation. And then the bullpen also has been really good at points and then has struggled and the injuries have really impacted that as well. So... Yeah, it's a, a constant moving picture with the starting with the rotation and with the bullpen with the Blue Jays. Yeah, we'll talk about the bullpen in a second, but I want to get to the uh, offense here. Uh, Marcus Semyon having a great first season in Toronto. Bo Bichette also having himself a very nice year, but Vladdy Jr. is at the center of everything, taking off this year in a way that a lot of people expected was going to happen eventually for him with all of that talent. Is this something as simple as the talent just taking over and the few years he's had in the majors accruing to his benefit in this third season? Or is there a substantive change in his approach that is helping him to you know, really put himself in the MVP race? I think that um, certainly talent um, plays a role. Everybody knew that and Vladdy had a lot of talent. That was evident in his minor league career. That was why he was the number one prospect when he was um, at that level. And so... Of course, he had a lot of talent. We all knew it. Um, but I think it's a, certainly a combination of things. You know, it's been um, documented that he put a lot of work in in the offseason to get in shape. He came into camp, uh, spring training camp, the best he'd ever looked. He'd lost, you know, more than 40 pounds. Um, he'd really worked on his fitness, his conditioning, his flexibility, his strength, all of that stuff. That was immediately evident. You could see it with his um his um, hitting with his defense at first base. He's looked so much more comfortable and natural there than he did last year. And part of that is just getting more comfortable with the position. But I think also it's just so clear that he's in a much better um, shape and he's feeling better physically. Um, And I think with the approach, um, I think that Vlad is a guy that fairly keeps it simple. He's always had really good plate discipline. That was sort of um, one of his calling cards up in the minor leagues. And of course, everyone compares it to his dad who swung at everything. (laughs) Vlad Jr. was not really like that. He actually was very selective. He walked a lot in the minor leagues. He was always the type of guy that, you know, like walked more than he struck out or it was about the same. He's doing that now at the major league level. So I think part of it is just like the confidence and and belief that he has like he goes up there and he knows what he's looking for he knows that guys have to throw it to him he's not gonna swing at everything he's gonna take a walk if you give him a walk he's just very confident I think he's and it's that and I think that comes from the two years previous where he did learn a lot about what um, it took to be a major league hitter. Um, and I think that is what stuck out to me the most. He just seems so comfortable and, of course, so happy with the results. How could you not be happy with these results? But just completely 
completely confident in himself and just knowing um, that even if he does have one bad at bat, it doesn't sort of like set him back the whole game, right? Like it's been very rare for him to go like 0 for 4 or 0 for 5. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would be shocked if it's more than like a small, a handful of games where he's done that. It feels like he's basically gotten on base nearly every game this year. Yeah, Vlad Jr. delivering on his potential has been one of the fun early season storylines in the game this year. Uh, I want to talk about George Springer for a moment. How is he progressing as he tries to get back from his setback? I mean, he came back briefly and made an impact and was gone. Does it look like he's going to come back and maybe actually shake this injury for good? Well, that's the hope, certainly. And I think you're right that it was a bit of a sort of ordeal to start the year. And then his really brief comeback there was disappointing, I think, for everybody, for the organization, for George Springer, for fans, because in that uh, like four games that he played, he looked good at the plate. Like there was a game where he hit a home run, like, you know, like 700 feet or whatever (laughs) it was. Um, And so it was um, nice to see him in the lineup for a while. I think that the last sort of update we got, which was a few days ago at this point, was just that he's improving. Um, He's running. I don't think that he's at like full sprinting yet, but he's kind of like improving in that run progression that they have him on and then the steps for him will be once he feels comfortable enough that he's running and and by the way the whole time he's been taking batting practice it's not really that it's sort of not that upper body that's the issue it's the lower body um and so once he is able to i guess run it at a comfortable level then they'll probably work him um in those more traditional like rehab outings so you'll probably see him go down to the minors at some level and get in games so he can play nine innings one of the big sort of like factors in all this is that when he came back the first time he actually never played in the field right he was only DHing. Bougie said that was the plan all along I think some people were sort of questioning um if he can't play in the field should he really be back and so the Blue Jays sort of say well he wanted to play and it was fine and and um he could DH and they wanted him in the lineup and he was comfortable doing that and the plan all along was if DH starts and then he'd play the field and it just never really progressed to that because almost kind of immediately he tweaked that quad so I think one thing that I'll be watching mindful of is when he comes back this time will he immediately just um, be able to play the field maybe not in that first game but I think it'd be important to watch how quickly he can play center field Um, I think that they'll probably be a little bit more cautious and mindful this time so I wouldn't be surprised if the, the progression here is a little bit slower Blue Jays are facing a unique change that we don't see very often, if at all, in really any sport, and that's that their home park is about to change. They've been playing in Dunedin to this point of the season. They're now moving to Buffalo. We know the offensive environment that you get down in Florida. Has the team said anything about that, how it could affect the hitters, how it could affect the pitchers? Has there been any sort of talk coming up from the team about this unique change they're facing coming up here? Um. So they're familiar with Buffalo because a lot of them played there last year. Mm -hmm. And Buffalo was kind of similar to Dunedin, if I recall, that like the wind could kind of really wreak havoc. And part of that is just like the way the stadiums there are. There's just not that second or third deck in Dunedin. There wasn't that. I think Buffalo has a second deck. So it's a little bit more sheltered. But of course, it's not like a major league park. So you're going to see the elements play a role a little bit more than you're typically used to in the in the majors. And I think that I think it's more of a factor this year, honestly. I think last year you could kind of grind through it because it was just 60 games and the Blue Jays did actually play really well on Buffalo. And I think it helped their offense, certainly. Um, I think this year it's a little bit um, more of a challenge just because it's going to be so much longer and there really is that sort of uncertainty about when they could be coming to Toronto, if at all. So I think that that's a little bit of a challenge to deal with as well. Um, we heard like Marcus Simeon say a few weeks ago that like he actually pref- prefers playing on the road this year because at least they're in major league ballparks when they're on the road. (laughs) And um, that was when they were in Dunedin. So the challenges were a little bit more in Dunedin. So I think Buffalo will be like, kind of a middle ground. It's not ideal. It might be a little bit better than than Florida. The weather obviously will be a little bit more comfortable for them there. Florida, they had to move at this point because the weather would just get too hot and too, you know, you can get the rain and the thunderstorms and all that kind of stuff. So it is a factor. The Blue Jays, though, have been dealing with it like a year and a half, two years at this point. So they are fairly good at just kind of 
ignoring it or just like not letting it be the storyline. They really don't want it to be like the focus. Um, they sort of just like grind through it. A, a good thing I think is that this team is still fairly young. A lot of them are like not that many years away from playing in the minors. I think that if this was like a more veteran older team, you'd see a lot more players sort of like fed up with it, but they really only have a handful of like sort of veteran guys. And they seem to be the type of guys that, um, just kind of are buying into it. Um, they obviously signed in Toronto knowing that this was going to be a possibility. So they all seem to sort of be dealing with it fine. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. Um, I hope that after these last two years, I'll, I'll never have to deal with it again because it's uh, not, <laughs> not great from my point of view as well. I'd love to see the Blue Jays here, but it is what it is. So we're always on the never-ending quest for saves on this podcast. And I think if we were listening more closely all along, we probably would have known the Jays were going to use some sort of committee. Caitlin, is it fair to say the Blue Jays will continue to use a committee to close out games for the foreseeable future? I think so. And part of that is because they are kind of running a fairly like short bullpen right now. Like They just don't have... Um, a lot of guys that they can necessarily put into those like high leverage situations. So sometimes if it's a seventh inning and the top of the lineup is coming up and um, it's a close game, they might, <clears throat> excuse me, want to put Jordan Romano in that spot because um, that's just the better spot for him. And so they have a few guys that they rely on in um, those situations. Like we saw Tyler Chatwood, although he didn't get that save, but they've put him in opportunities. Rafael Delis is another guy they put in opportunities and Jordan Romano is probably the other guy. They've lost Kirby Yates. Obviously they lost David Phelps. Um, Julian Merriweather has been on the IL for a long time now. There's probably names that I'm forgetting. Um, Anthony Castro is also a guy that like early on he got some save opportunities. Maybe that will be more coming up for him. He's kind of like still working his way back from injury. But I would say that, yeah, I don't know. Like if there was a candidate, it would be Jordan Romano, I think, because he's sort of finding a groove now he's looking like the guy he was last year mm -hmm. after a little bit of a bumpy start um and so if there was going to be a guy that's going to emerge he would be my pick but i also think that the blue jays are in a place where they are using him where it makes the most sense and sometimes that is in the seventh inning sometimes that's in the eighth inning so i would say that yeah it's still going to be sort of a rotating cast of closers all right that's caitlin mcgrath our blue jays beat writer here at the athletic caitlin again thanks for joining us today Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we keep rolling right along in this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Next up, Levi Weaver. Levi, of course, covers the Texas Rangers for us. Levi, I'm going to dive right in. There's really only one place to start with the Rangers. It is Adalis Garcia. I, I mean, we knew we had the power. We knew something sort of close to this could potentially be in his best case range of outcomes. But I don't think anyone, maybe even Garcia himself, saw this coming. How do you explain the Adolis Garcia phenomenon so far this season? You know, it's funny. I can actually confirm that uh, even Adolis Garcia is a little bit surprised. Somebody asked him that the other night. Like, hey, are you even a little bit surprised how well this is going? And he was like, yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, he he's one of those. I still remember the first time I saw him. Um, the Rangers were doing a winter workout. This would have been in the offseason between 2019 and 2020. And they were at the, the Rangers Academy here in Dallas. And I remember just like walking in and, you know, you see all the players and most of the guys you're aware of or you know, and you sort of wave your hellos back when, you know, we could get within a hundred feet of the players. And, uh, I just see this guy and I'm like, 
who is this guy? Like he's built like a like a fullback. Um, I mean, just he's huge. And um, they're like, oh yeah, the 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 Adolis Garcia, the guy that they got off uh, like a, the waiver claim or whatever from St. Louis. I'm like, is he any good? And kind of the general response is like, eh, we'll see. <laughs> like he's got he's got a lot of power, but he chases a lot. And that was kind of that was the reason that he was that St. Louis was willing to let him go. He struck out I don't know something like thirty percent of the time that he hit thirty two home runs in uh, I think it was twenty nineteen in in AAA, but struck out all, uh, just too much, and so they let him go. and And that was the thing that they were working on in in twenty twenty too. It was like just stop chasing this the spin. You got to stop chasing. They're just gonna you get to the big leagues. They're just gonna throw you slider after slider. You'll never get another fastball. You've got to learn to control that. And he spent last year at the alt site just working and working and working. And sure enough, in spring training this year, he, he just went off. Uh, and they they took him off the 40-man roster this offseason. Like, other teams had a chance to claim him, and nobody did. And he went off this spring, and it was it was really impressive. Like, we were a little bit surprised that he didn't make the team out of out of camp. Um, but even that, even as, as as impressive as he was in spring, I don't think anybody saw this coming because it's not just that his numbers are big. It's that he's doing this all like in the late innings. He'll come in in a, like a big clutch moment. The team's down one. He's hitting walk-off home runs. He's hitting home runs to give the team the lead. It's like for a guy that couldn't calm down, all of a sudden you put him in the high-pressure situations and he is just ice-cold water in his veins. Like last night. He came up in the ninth inning, and it was kind of like, oh, well, your team's down one. There's a runner on first. He's about to hit the go-ahead home run. Here it comes. And he didn't do it, and it was surprising that he didn't do it. So it's it's been phenomenal just to watch this guy. And then, of course, on top of that, it, he's just so much fun. Like, just will not hesitate to celebrate and just bounce around the bases, and he's yelling back into the dugout and let's go. And it's he's made the team a whole lot of fun to watch, which is something that hasn't really been the case for the Rangers in a while. Yeah, I'm, if you said before the season, where were the Rangers on your watchability rankings? I would have said bottom five. You know, the pitching doesn't really have any frontline guys. Position players are more like role guys. It's kind of unclear who's going to be there on the next good Rangers team. Garcia alone has really changed their fortunes on that front. It helps that they're getting a little healthier, too. Willie Calhoun being back, he's the kind of guy that a few years ago when they acquired him from the Dodgers, we liked him as a guy that puts a ton of balls in play and makes a lot of hard contact. I'm surprised they're leading him off, but I love it from a, an opportunity standpoint. Do you think there's still the possibility we get a 260, 270 average with prorated like 30 home run type power from Willie Calhoun? I would honestly be more inclined to think that we will get a season where he hits 300 with about 25 home runs. Um, and the reason that I say that is like when he was coming up in the in the minor leagues, we've talked to him about this year, uh, about this this year. That he used to be more of a contact, like bat to ball guy, um, hit for high average. And then kind of once he started to develop some power and the home runs started to come, his focus really shifted and he tried to kind of become a home run hitter. And I, I don't think that served him super well. And so I, he's kind of gotten back this year uh, to making more contact, to driving the ball to the gap, go the opposite way when, when the occasion calls for it. Dude can hit a high fastball too, apparently. Like he's had a couple of home runs on pitches at his eyes. Um, so he, I, I, I would be more inclined to think that that is his peak as a guy that hits, you know, 300 to 320. And then the power is just sort of a natural outpouring of that. Let's take a look at Nate Lowe here for a second. He's generally doing Nate Lowe things, hitting for a good average, hitting for solid power. The one thing that stands out relative to the previous years of his career is that he's got four steals, and he was just never really a stolen base guy, and here he is with four steals two months into the season. And my question for you is, is this a Nate Lowe thing, or is this an organizational thing? Because you also see the Rangers sitting at third in the majors in steals. Yeah, it's a Rangers thing. Um, they that that has been a primary focus of theirs, and the the idea is that they want to establish that early, so that pitchers are aware, like, oh, I'm facing the Rangers, they're going to run, and therefore you start to see guys giving their fastest times to home plate against the Rangers to try to cut that down. Well, the idea is that that will decrease the quality of pitch from the pitchers, um, or if you're a hitter, like increase the quality of you know hittable pitches that you see. Um, that's the idea. 
the Rangers have also been no hit a couple times this year, so uh, <laughs> we'll, we, we'll see if that works. But but yeah, I think that is more of a an organizational philosophy than it is Nate Lowe just deciding to start running wild. Ian Kennedy has been great so far, and I don't know if anybody yeah. saw that coming, but it seems like he'll be traded to a contender at some point and end up being a third or fourth best option in someone else's bullpen. Is there someone else that you like in the current core of Rangers relievers to possibly take over that closer role if and when a Kennedy trade happens? Uh, yeah, let's see. Jose Leclerc. No, he's out for the year. Um, Jonathan Hern- Hernandez, he's out for the year. Uh, Matt Matt Bush is probably also out for the year. Uh, Joely Rodriguez, I guess. Like, <laughs> with that's kind of been the thing with the Rangers bullpen is is they were kind of set to have a really good bullpen this year, and just dudes have gotten injured. Um, Josh Spores has been better than I expected him to be, so he might be somebody that jumps in there at the end. And then um, maybe Demarcus Evans. Honestly, Demarcus Evans just got called up this week. Uh, not an overpowering fastball, but a big spin rate on his fastball gets a lot of strikeouts. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe that's my answer. Let, let's go to Marcus Evans. I like that. I like that. And injuries, man. I mean, not just the Ranger. That's been one of the big stories, of course, across Major League Baseball this season. Uh, Leody Tavares struggled really uh, to start the season. Got sent down. Mm-hmm. To AAA, uh, obviously the Rangers want to see him back in the majors at some point, and I'm sure that's at some point this season. What's the plan for him right now? And assuming he does get back to being an MLB regular, who ultimately gets squeezed? Yeah, I think it's it's great uh, I, that the Rangers have options that they don't have mm-hmm. to rush him. I, and I I think their ultimate goal with him is they want to see him be the starting center fielder of the future for the next ten years. And so if that means that he doesn't get back to the big leagues this year, but he has a year of development, fine. And and that's a whole lot easier to do. There, there are two factors. One, the team's not contending. They don't need him to come up and like be the thing that puts them over the top. And two, I mean, right now their center fielder is Adolis Garcia, who is kind of the only thing about the Rangers that anybody knows right now. So um, I think at some point, if he does uh, put it together and he's ready to come back up, you would probably see, you know, right now the Rangers have a couple of veteran guys that are not doing so hot. Chris Davis, uh, who came over for Elvis Andrews in that trade, and then David Dahl, who is currently on the on the injured list. Neither of those guys has had a super impressive year. Um, Davis, obviously older than Dahl. I think the idea was, let's see what Dahl has left in the tank. Um but I think probably what you would see happen is one of one or both of those guys ends up getting squeezed and Willie Calhoun can just go be the full-time DH. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, Adolis Garcia probably would shift to left field and then you've got Tavares in center. And all of a sudden with a gold glover in right field with Joey Gallo, that that's a pretty sweet outfield defensively. So that that is probably where I would see it going. Levi wanted to ask uh, if Josh Young has made any progress back from that foot injury recently because he's one more interesting bat who could be up. We spoke to Caitlin McGrath a little earlier on the show and um, kind of like Alec Manoa, he was a player drafted out of college two years ago and had there been a minor league season last year, I think there'd be more hype about Young's eventual arrival. When do you think he might be healthy enough to contribute? Yeah, uh, that is, that's a good question. He is, I feel like, I'm trying to. I think last I heard, he had gone back to Arizona to resume baseball activities, uh, which is a good, a good sign. Um, I th- I think you can see exactly what the the team's philosophy is on Young, and that right now, uh, their third basemen are uh, Charlie Culberson and Brock Holt, and both of those guys have been great. Like you need some veteran clubhouse leaders, uh, but those are not the guys that you sign to hold down the job all year or into next year. Those are kind of placeholder guys. And so I think right now it's completely up to Josh Young. They were really impressed at how he developed last year at the alt site. And if there was one guy in the Rangers system that really benefited from the alt site uh, situation last year, might might have been Young, honestly, because instead of playing at high A, going to double A, he's around big league coaches. He's around, you know, basically gets to hang out with the big leaguers and see what kind of work they're putting in. And, um, you know, then he went to Arizona Fall League and just absolutely raked. And so I, I think as soon as he's healthy, he probably ends up at, I would guess, Frisco uh, in double A. And then I think it's kind of up to him at that point. If he if he starts hitting, you know, 500 for a month, then he probably probably gets a shot at the big leagues. And um, 
Uh, that would not surprise me at all. But again, Culberson and Holt are doing fine. And so if if he struggles at double A and you know he's never played that high, if he hits 200 for a month, okay, that's fine. Similar to Tavares, they don't need him up this year. When they need Josh Young, it's going to be when they're ready to contend again, they need him to be part of that core. And so however that development works best, if it's in the big leagues, whether it's in the minor leagues, uh, either way, it's not really about this year anyway. Could see a very different Rangers team in the second half, depending on how these next couple of months go. That's Levi Weaver, our Rangers beat writer here at The Athletic. Levi, thanks again for joining us today. Of course, anytime. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, DVR, let's bring this thing home. We're going to do that with something that I love doing. You know I love doing this. Anyone who listens to either this podcast or our fantasy football podcasts probably know that I love doing this. Jake Seeley, Brandon Funston, they get subjected to this during the football season. We're going to subject you to it during the baseball season here. Easiest thing, easiest thing any of us in the fantasy sports industry can do once we're a decent chunk of the way into the season and people are looking to make moves is say, you know, buy low, sell high, go buy this underachiever low, go sell this overachiever high. It's the easiest piece of advice we can give you. It's not quite as instructive as it feels like it can be. I think the more interesting thing to talk about is buy high, sell low. Whose big time performance to this point of the season that someone maybe is looking to sell high, are you buying in on at face value? Whose bad performance to this point of the season are you willing to just get out of that someone maybe thinks they are buying low? So let's get into that here, DVR. Buy high, sell low. We'll start on the buy high side. Give me someone who has been awesome to this point of the season that you think is just going to continue on the trajectory that he has set. You know, I'm going to give you two kind of together. I think it's really difficult to trade for impact starting pitching. And I think when you're looking for guys that you know, weren't cracking the first round back in March during our snake drafts. They weren't cracking $30 in most auctions. There are a couple guys that would do that if we were drafting today. I know there's some second chance drafts coming up uh, over the weekend over at the NFBC. Brandon Woodruff and Tyler Glass now are two pitchers that I think should be moved up from where they were previously. And I think between myself and, and Eno, we were as high on Brandon Woodruff as anybody out there possibly could be. But this is real. This is Brandon Woodruff putting all the pieces together. I think he's been a little bit overshadowed by Corbin Burns and the magnificent start to the season that Burns has had. And I think people are just overlooking the fact that Woodruff just needs to stay healthy to truly be one of the elite of the elite pitchers in the game. The K rate's still up above 30%. The walk rate's still right in line with his career norms at 5.9%. He's doing a great job keeping the ball in the park. And as I talked about with Al Melchior a couple weeks ago, the home run suppression we've seen throughout Brandon Woodruff's career, despite being in a park that boosts home runs for half his starts, that's actually a skill that he owns. He induces relatively weak contact on fly balls and line drives. So he's doing every possible thing to sustain being a top five fantasy starter going forward. I know he's going to be expensive everywhere because, again, pitching's hard to get, but I wouldn't hesitate paying the steep price to get him if I need a top-end pitcher. And I think in a similar vein, maybe, 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 maybe slightly cheaper because he doesn't have as long of a track record with ratios this good, it's Tyler Glass now. 
We've got Glass now with two breaking balls now. He's got the slider and the curveball behind the fastball. The ratios are great so far. 98 Ks in 70 innings. K rate still well north of 35%, 36.2%. The walk rate's down a tick from where it was last year. And the home run rate surge we saw a year ago, that appears to be a fluke. He's back down to a more normal 1.16 homers per nine. I think that's probably a more reasonable sort of rate to assume from him going forward. We know the Trop is a great place to pitch, probably the easiest place to pitch of any of the parks in the AL East. This guy does every single thing you're looking for from an ace. So I think you're probably getting someone that people are treating like a top 10 to 15 starter, and he still could, for the rest of the season, exceed those expectations. Even if he meets your expectations, you're thrilled to have a guy like that because I think a lot of pitchers in that kind of 30 to 60 range on the rankings are proving to be just as volatile as ever. And I think the other thing we're looking at here, over the course of the season, we've had a lot of injuries on position players so far. I'm curious to see if that flips in the second half as the cumulative workloads for pitchers gets into the higher end of where they've been in the past, if that's going to start breaking pitchers down late in the year. So getting great ratios while you can is going to be critically important. Yeah, Brandon Woodruff, I I am right there with you on him, and I hope we are right about that because I've got a, from the preseason, Brandon Woodruff to win the NL Cy Young bet at 20-1 to sitting in my pocket. So feeling very good about the start that he has gotten off to, and I think he's a top five uh, fantasy and maybe even real-life starting pitcher right now and for the rest of the season. I'm going to take things over into the uh, offensive side. We were just talking to Caitlin McGrath a little bit ago about the Blue Jays and someone who we didn't really get into. Marcus Semien, love what we've seen from him at this point of the season. 286, 349, 536, 12 homers and 8 steals, doing basically everything, contributing to all five fantasy categories, and that is no matter what rate category your league uses, batting average, OBP, maybe you use OPS, whatever it is, Marcus Semien is a big plus for you in that category, and I do think he's gettable right now, right? We would not necessarily think a guy with second base and shortstop eligibility That slash line, 12 homers, 8 steals. Like, yeah, everyone wants him. He's not necessarily the easiest guy to trade for. But seeing a lot of chatter about something we talked about with Caitlin, the move from Dunedin to Buffalo. People are thinking that maybe Marcus Semien's offensive performance has been buoyed by playing his home games in Dunedin. And to an extent, maybe it has. But he's had six homers on the road. Six at home, six on the road. He's not just doing it all at home. He has been just fine away from Dunedin as well. So I don't think the move is going to be that dramatic when it comes to affecting his offensive stats. Maybe it does take a little bit of a chunk away, but nothing that you look at the end of the season and say, oh my God, he was a totally different player once uh, uh, the, the Blue Jays made that move to Buffalo. So I feel very good about him, and I do think... He is gettable. We did touch on that a little bit uh, with Caitlin. I want to ask you, how much are you factoring that in for the entire range of Blue Jays, not just their hitters, but their pitchers as they make this move? You know, I think it will be similar to Dunedin because I think Dunedin was playing reasonably hitter-friendly, right? So you're still not flipping the script completely. So I don't think you're getting a case where pitchers become more valuable, hitters become less valuable. I think the fact that it's familiar to them having played there last year, as Caitlin said, that means a lot. Like this isn't something that where you have players going into a spot where they haven't gotten used to the batter eye, they haven't gotten used to the ins and outs, the day to day life uh, being in Buffalo, right? Like they've they've gone through this for the most part. I mean, guys like Springer and Semyon weren't there last year, but the core of this team has experienced this before. So I think they can make that transition relatively easily. I'm right there with you. So I feel very good about him and very good just about that offense going there. I'll throw one more guy out there quickly. Uh, Not quite on the same level of a pitcher as Brandon Woodruff and Tyler Glasnow, but Trevor Rogers, um, this was someone who had a very identifiable ceiling coming into the season. We are seeing that play out. 1.75 ERA, 1.06 whip, a K rate north of 31%. All the stat cast indicators, they're not deep, deep red, but comfortably above average. And the thing that I love seeing from him, you know, we knew he was going to be a big time uh, four seam guy. We knew that that was going to be the pitch that he leaned on in a significant way, but he sort of flipped the usage of his ch- uh, changeup and slider just in terms of straight usage rate from last year. And both pitches have been better. Both pitches are getting a very high whiff rate. The changeup at 34.9%, the slider at 42.6%. He's putting away plenty of hitters with both of those pitches. And it just seems to be the right way, the right tandem, the right sort of usage for those two pitches pairing up 
with that four-seamer that sits in the mid-90s. So I don't think anything we've seen to this point is mirage. I don't think anything we've seen is just two months of good pitching. I think this is generally the pitcher who Trevor Rogers is. Maybe not a 175 ERA guy for the whole season, but a very, very good starting pitcher for the whole season. Maybe there are some workload concerns. We haven't really seen the Marlins push him up toward 100 pitches at any point this season. So maybe the volume, especially as the season goes on, and maybe if the Marlins aren't in contention, maybe that becomes a bit of an issue for you. But I still think that what we've seen is what you get with Trevor Rogers, and you can take what he's done to this point of the season basically at face value. Yeah, I mean, I've got him a few places, and I don't think there's a player outside of the Brewers making me more happy <laughs> this season with their step forward than Trevor Rogers. Uh, I'm a believer. I think Eno had him inside his top 30 in his latest starting pitching rankings that went up last week. So I think that's probably about what it's going to take in terms of valuation if you're going to make a deal for him right now. But I could see him, even if those ratios kind of come into the low three ERA range, kind of a 115, 118 whip here on out, plenty of Ks, like, that's worth going after where you can get them. All right, let's get on over to the sell low part of this discussion. Uh, four names coming from us here, all four very well known in the fantasy baseball world. The one who jumps out at me, though, is on your side of things, DVR. You are not seeing a Francisco Lindor rebound anytime in the near future. Explain why and when you would sell him low, like what is it, what is it going to be? What does someone offer you that says, yeah, I'll give up Lindor for that? Well, that's a really good question. But here's the main reason why I'm concerned. We have Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, J.D. Davis, uh, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, and uh, Dominic Smith all banged up. Smith's not on the IL. Everybody else I just mentioned is. This is not the lineup that you thought you were going to have around Lindor when he was traded out of Cleveland into the situation in New York. And I don't think it's necessarily that I don't believe in Lindor's skills bouncing back, but part of what's made him such a great fantasy player over the years is being an everyday guy in what was a top-heavy Cleveland lineup. The counting stats were outstanding. Mm -hmm. That was driving his value quite a bit. Obviously, he ran a bit and had legitimate power, but if you start to regress him off of his peaks for both power and steals, just the core skills he can control, and then you take away the quality of the supporting cast— he can't bounce back to his Cleveland levels in the short term for reasons that are out of his control. Like There are some things he has to do to bounce back, but I think part of the reason I would consider moving Lindor is that I think you could see him as the kind of guy that you would find in the buy-low columns and on buy-low pods. Like, go get Francisco Lindor. Look at his track record. I don't disagree with that core philosophy. I think if you're in a, a dynasty league, this is a window to get a guy that's still going to be a very good player for several years. But I think if you're in a redraft league and you think Francisco Lindor is going to get to peak levels for the rest of 2021, you're going to be disappointed. So I think it's kind of more like 75 to 80 cents on the dollar. If he was a guy that was a early second round pick back in March, I wouldn't be surprised if he's kind of a fourth or fifth round pick mm -hmm. or looking at some of these second chance drafts that are coming up. Um, so I guess that would put him in the range of like a typical top 50 sort of player, whether that's one player straight up, you know, one for one or a two for one where you, you know, give two to get Lindor or give Lindor to get two rather. Any of those combinations can work. Uh, if we're going like pitcher to hitter, I would want if someone offered me Julio Urias for Francisco Lindor right now, I would make that trade in a heartbeat. I, I'd rather have Urias the rest of the way. And Urias is, you know, 15th ranked starting pitcher right now, just to kind of give everybody some context as to the types of players we're thinking about. That supporting cast point that you make about Lindor is a really good one. And some of those guys, Conforto, McNeil, J.D. Davis, like those guys are nowhere near returning. Maybe Pete Alonso is not too far away. Dom Smith is just a day-to-day -day situation for the time being, but... The Mets are going to have a lot of big-time regulars out of their lineup for a while, and that supporting cast could definitely hurt really everyone involved, and certainly Lindor would be chief among them. I'm going to stick uh, in that division, at that position, with a guy who still has a very good supporting cast, not really a ton of injuries for his team, but Dansby Swanson just hasn't lived up to expectations. I really was high on Dansby Swanson this year. I, <laughs> I was basically going into a lot of drafts thinking if I missed out on the top of the top shortstops, then I'll fall back, I'll wait, and I'll get Dansby Swanson or Marcus Semien, and I don't really care which one I end up getting. And let me tell you, I am very happy that it ended up being Marcus Semien in more of those cases because you know Dansby Swanson just has not looked great this year. And I, I think we can take that basically as is. He's striking out a lot. 
He's not walking. He's swinging and missing a lot. The exit velocity, the hard hit rate, the barrel rate, they're fine. But, you know, Dansby Swanson is a guy who needs to be really accumulating a volume to be putting up the numbers that you're looking for with where you drafted him. And really just what you're looking for out of a shortstop these days at a position that has gotten a whole lot deeper over the last five, six years. And he just hasn't done it. And I don't see how it turns around for him anytime soon. I like the fact that he's been on a little bit of a hot streak here. I think you can use that to your advantage. I think he's another guy who could show up like Lindor, maybe not to the extremes of Lindor, but he's a guy who could show up on some buy low lists right now, especially with the fact that he has what, like three homers in his last six games, something along those lines. Maybe it's even a little bit better than that, but I think that that's really just a short-term thing. And I'm concerned with what we've seen from him. I'm concerned with the fact that the ceiling was never super high he was always going to have to be a pretty steady guy to meet the expectations that we had for him coming into the year, and it just hasn't been there for him this season. So Dansby Swanson is another guy for me that if someone was offering me $0.75, 80 cents on the dollar, I'd be pretty tempted to take it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think if you consider last year from a per-game perspective was probably a level he couldn't sustain anyway I think that maybe drove prices a little higher than they should have been back during draft season still a very solid player not a lot of threats to his playing time but I would agree with your assessment like 80 cents on the dollar in a trade would be acceptable yeah so an unfortunate turn for Dansby Swanson but as you said playing time not a concern that glove's always going to play for him and uh, really think that Atlanta still got much better baseball ahead of them in the second or the the back two-thirds of the season. Let's get a couple more guys in here under the wire before we let things go. One more guy who you think really isn't going to have been much of a turnaround the rest of the way. So he's on the IL right now, so I don't know if there's a whole lot of activity with trading him, but Kevin Biggio, like I, how is it going to happen? How is he going to bounce back? As that depth chart gets more crowded, he sort of ended up in more of like a super utility situation anyway. Is he as big a part of the plan for the Jays as we thought two months ago? I would argue no. The K rate has jumped a lot. I think he's a player that didn't have a lot of margin for error to begin with. We just haven't seen the same power that we saw in the past. Slugging 315, maybe the injury is a big part of the reason why. I'm just not expecting a massive bounce back for him when he gets back. Part of what's made him so good so far in his big league career is the efficiency on the base paths. He's 22 for 23 as a base dealer in 198 career games. But coming off an injury like the one that he has, I'm not sure he's going to run quite as much. I also don't know if the Jays need him to run Mm -hmm. quite as much, given the way their offense is playing as a whole. So I've really lowered my expectations for Biggio post-injury. hope he gets back, proves me wrong, and, and gets healthy in the next few weeks. But I had a hard time talking myself into him at the price on draft day. And I think now it's kind of like the Swanson situation once he's healthy again, probably even more of a steep discount. I'd probably take 50 or 60 cents on the dollar Mm -hmm. via trade. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would look at Biggio when he's healthy and say he's definitely a top 100 player. I think he's more in that 150 to 200 range. Just too many holes in the game and exploitable holes. And as you said, if he's not running, he already he already didn't. It's not like he ran a ton. He was just a very smart, savvy base stealer. So if even that is reduced a little bit, then you're looking at a guy whose faults are starting to outweigh uh, what he does bring to the table. Last guy who I'll throw out here for us is Blake Snell. And this one for me is just, uh, uh, you know, sort of an accumulation of what we've seen over a couple of seasons from Blake Snell, really since the Cy Young season. It's just, he it's too uneven. The performance is too uneven. He's always going to strike guys out. There's always going to be a taker for Blake Snell because the strikeouts are legit. He's always going to strike dudes out. He's got a ton of whip, win upside every single time. He takes the mound being on San Diego. So there's still plenty to like about Blake Snell. I'm not saying that he's some bum, but the performance is just super, super inconsistent. Walking so many guys, giving up hard contact, giving up home runs. You almost don't know what you're going to get outside of he's going to strike out like 1.2 batters per inning. Maybe he's only going to pitch two innings and he's going to give you four strikeouts. He's going to do that. But other than that, you don't know what you're getting every single time he takes the mound. It was part of the reason why I was scared off of him this year. I just thought the opportunity cost was too high. When you looked at the other players he was going around in drafts, whether we're talking pitchers or hitters, he was being selected so high that you were passing on you know, sure thing players or close to sure thing players to get a guy who did have this mercurial nature. 
about him, and we're seeing that play out before our eyes here this season. So I'm, I'm comfortable trading Blake Snell. I'm comfortable. I would put him more in the same range we talked about with Swanson and Lindor because the strikeouts are legit. He's going to strike dudes out, so I'm not trying to just get out from under him no matter what. But if someone is willing to flip me 80 cents on that dollar for Blake Snell, I think i take it because I want the stability. I don't necessarily want to be wondering what I'm getting every time I'm sending this pitcher to the mound. I want someone who's a little bit more stable than what we've seen from Blake Snell now going back a few seasons. I don't think you have to necessarily take that much of a discount to move him either. Even with the performance being where it is, it might be 90 to 95 cents on the dollar. It might be a case where if you needed a bat, you could take Blake Snell and flip him to the manager who has Trevor Rogers and also get a bat that helps you back as part of the return, make it a one for two or just kick in someone from the bottom of your roster to round it out. So I I didn't have Snell anywhere when the season started. I'm not going out and trading for him right now. I mean, I think there was probably a reason why the Rays were willing to part with him. Not that he's bad, but just that it's possible that we'd already seen the best of Blake Snell. And while he could turn things around, relatively speaking to his slow start, I don't know if he's going to pop a high twos, low threes ERA with a great whip the rest of the way either. That's uh, just too, too inconsistent for me to really want to get behind. So it's another one who I would look to move. Those are some buy high and some sell low. See, wasn't that more fun? Isn't that more fun than buy low and sell high? <laughs> to make you think a little bit more and give you something that's maybe a little bit more actionable. These are the stances that we take that can actually maybe help you win a league going forward while we are here before we sign things off we do have a uh, an email line that we've got open for you now for this show tafantasysports at gmail.com if you have any questions Derek and I of course are going to be back with you actually Al Melchior will be in place of the very well-earned vacationing Derek Van Riper on Sunday doing our waiver wire show so if you have any questions related to trades waivers whatever it might be hit us up at tafantasysports at gmail.com we are going to now sign off for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. For Derek Van Riper, Caitlin McGrath, and Levi Weaver, I am Michael Beller. Thanks to all of you out there for watching and or listening to us. We're back with you on Sunday with our look at Fab and Waivers for the week ahead. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.